Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, thank you so much for coming this evening and thank you so much to the Royal Academy for inviting Ez and I to speak. I'm Alice Rawsthorne and it'll be my pleasure to moderate the talk with Ez this evening and we're all in for a treat. Ez is of course one of the most compelling, original, ingenious, resourceful and engaging designers of our time. And her design of sets and other productions and performances has influenced other designers and been seen by millions of people worldwide. So it will be a real treat to hear her talking about it. First, a little bit about her. She grew up um, in and around Rye on the south coast of England and is one of those rare and very fortunate individuals whose childhood passions she's managed to somehow make into a truly remarkable career. Because what she loved most as a kid was reading and making weird things, generally from cereal packets and other bits of cardboard. And of course, she's won an OBE, Shoals of Olivier's and many other awards and honors from doing so in adult life. She studied English and art and then found her métier when she studied at the famous Motley Theatre Design School here in London. Her first job was at the Octagon Theatre in Bolton. She obviously had an absolutely peppercorn budget and had to learn most of the principles of plumbing for the set that she designed for them. And of course, she's gone on to work in theatre, opera, dance, fashion, and also mega stadium tours for people like Beyonce, The Weeknd, U2, Kanye West, and Adele, where millions of people have seen her work all over the world. One of the qualities that makes Eze's work so extraordinary is her eclecticism. She works across a huge range of different scales, different budgets, different media, different materials, and different technologies. And yet, however visually spectacular and sophisticated and complex the result is, it never ever overpowers or distracts from the production or performance. It always enhances the audience's experience of watching it. She's also quite remarkable at identifying and constructing a mesmerizing image that defines the production and that's so powerful that it lingers in people's memories for years to come. And she manages to do this without ever resorting to oversimplification or stereotyping. So those are just some of the things that make her work so powerful and so engaging and so important and potent for people. Um, if I had to assess her work as a designer, I would probably do so less by considering her among fellow set designers than as what you could call a contextual designer, a designer whose work focuses on framing and presenting the work of artists from other disciplines to optimize the audience's engagement of it. So I'd probably liken her to people like Irma Boom, the incredible Dutch graphic designer whose books are designed specifically to make reading them more meaningful. Or Saul Bass, the great 20th century film title designer whose opening credit sequences for the films of Kubrick, Scorsese, Hitchcock and others, again, were specifically devised to set the mood for the film, so to engage the audience and immerse them in the action right from the beginning. And Eze's sets have a similar effect. In recent times, 
much of her experimentation has gone on developing her own content in her own projects, and she's going to talk about a couple of those projects for us this evening. One is a mediated reading experience in Peckham, and that may sound nonsensical, but it will make sense when Ez explains it. And another is the introduction of a red lion to Trafalgar Square, which will somehow send a new line of poetry every evening up Nelson's column. So without further ado, Ez Desvelin. Now I can't sit down. Thanks for coming. Thank you for... I did listen to the introduction. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so I wanted to do a little bit of talking about my studio. I'm going to start with a, a sort of general introduction in case people don't know what I do. So I'm going to just show a few pictures to begin with. Um, and then I haven't really talked much before about my studio and how it works. So I'm going to show images of my studio, a ground plan of my studio, and just talk you through a little bit how ideas are passed from hand to hand around the people in my studio, and also how the studio has become a little bit of a sort of memory palace and a repository of ongoing trains of thought um, that has sort of percolated through 20 years. So I'm going to use the studio as a way of tracing some recurrent trains of thought throughout the work. Um, initially, though, just a, a broad sweep of some of the things I've been doing. Um, here's a piece of recent work in New York. Um, it's a collaboration with Bjarke Ingels. Um, and I, I rather like the way Alice put just now this sense of contextualizing uh, the work of others. So in, to be very specific, Bjarke's building is right here. And the invitation was to make a, a work, any kind of work, in response to his building. Um, so this was it. Um, this was a, a work from, um, let me see, 2013, Kanye West, uh, his tour Jesus. This is a mirror maze that took place in Miami uh, at Art Basel last Christmas. Um, this is another mirror maze, the sort of denouement at the heart of it, that was in Peckham two years ago. Um, a mask, I don't want to obstruct people's view, uh, a mask for Abel Tesfaye to perform in front of at Coachella Festival, the weekend. Here's another project with the weekend, a giant origami aeroplane um, that flexed its muscles throughout his tour. And this is the work at at uh, Bregenz on the lake, uh, an opera, Carmen, which is just being taken apart as we speak. It was there for two years. It's now card by card being dismounted. Uh, this was the Olympic closing ceremony in London. And this is a work that's still on uh, at Somerset House. Mask. This one was at the Donmar Theatre a couple of years ago, a Brian Friel play. Uh, this is an early one, 2002, a ballet at Kulberg in Sweden. This was the first piece of pop that I engaged in, a band called Wire at the Barbican Theatre. And here's Beyoncé um, in Paris at the Stade de France for the formation tour. Miley sliding down her own tongue into her show. Um, and Adele uh, on her last arena tour. A small piece uh, at the Almeida Theatre, 
Chimerica. And this is U2's current tour. Another one of U2. So, the studio. This is, how, this is where it is. I live in here. This is my kitchen. This is where I eat my food. This is where I sit by my fire. And that's where I live. And my husband works in there. And this is my studio, these rooms here. I think I've got, maybe got a pointer. There we go. So I actually don't have a desk. I just kind of float. So we've got a really nice table here that actually goes up and down and I float around on here. And then I have Matty, Angie, Ruby, Amelie, oh sorry, Ruby, Amelie, Machiko and Jack. And they are my six hands, six extra hands and minds, and they've all brought their own uh, memory palaces with them. Uh, here's a close-up of it. So the way I, I consider this space, also what obviously you can't see in this is some of the stuff that's around the walls. So here's Angie working away. There's Amelie, nice close-up of her. There's my handbag. Handbag's still up there. Um, these are the hands. These were the model hands, uh, the sort of one-to-eight version on the way to making the big Bregenz piece I just showed you. This is a model for Don Giovanni, some model pieces over here on the way to being a, a play called Linda at the Royal Court Theatre. These are really old model pieces that I, when I moved into this studio, I was very careful. I sort of picked through the wreckage of years of accumulated stuff in a studio I'd been in for let's say, 15 years. Um, and I picked these pieces out very specifically because I wanted them to be repositories of these trains of thought that keep recurring. Mazes, clockwork, female silhouette, hands. Uh, there you see the mask piece. This was when we were making a model of it. This is the psych from a piece called The Layman Trilogy that's on right now at the National Theatre. This was an early work, which I'm going to tell you a bit more about as we go along. This was a maze that I made by hand before we were even using Rhino or any computer-generated um, drawings at all. We had to work out the slant of it, piece it all together in 2005. But I've kept these things very specifically to keep reminding myself um, where some of these ideas came from. And I just had a little look at the word discipline because... Those little objects I just showed you have kept surfacing through different genres. And I think the word multidiscipline has to really be uh, applied to the way the studio is working at the moment. So I was intrigued to unpick this word. And I was shocked because I had no idea that it really uh, meant punishment and correction much more uh, early, uh, much earlier than meaning uh, a branch of instruction or education. Um, so this attitude actually came from the word pupil to begin with. So it started with a disciplus and then disciple and then to punish. So isn't it extraordinary um, that the idea of correction and punishment came prior to the idea of education? And sometimes, obviously, we do feel a bit like that, you know, multidiscipline, multi-correctional. Um, and I wanted to therefore unpick a little bit why some of these shapes keep recurring in my work. And I've talked a little bit about this before, so I'm not going to go on too much. If anyone's attended a talk before, I don't want to bore you. But 
Alice mentioned this and this model uh, of Rye, I think, I think something happens when you're six or seven uh, neurologically and that your brain just gets little, it's as if the wires get tightened, get welded together. Um, I think this is, is the case. And when I was six or seven, my parents were entertaining their friends from London who'd come down to visit them in Rye. And we went to this thing every weekend. And it's a little sonne lumiere, and they light up every little building. And my house was somewhere like there, I think. And they would light up my house, with a little glowing light in it, and tell the story of a person who lived in it. And in my head, I kind of thought I was in the house at the same time as being outside the house. And the idea of storytelling and place and streets and narratives became very natural and just became locked in my mind as a system, I think. Um, there we are, little models. Oh yeah, I might play that actually. I'm play the the fire one. If I jump back. So this is from um, Hastings Fire. Uh, Hastings Firework Night. And this again was a really important ritual. Ryan Hastings had these things going on, pouring down the streets. And that was a, another sort of, um, a, a sort of, a, something that just became very natural, that there would always be this anarchy on a street. And yet in counterpoint to that um, was this, where I went to church every Sunday more out of kind of my parents' habit. They weren't particularly religious people, but they felt it was a good idea to have this kind of order. Their parents had done it. And these things, these kind of stations of the cross and these props, uh, again, became very instinctive. So the idea of props that tell stories sort of lodged with me quite early. Um, and then these boxes, I was always fascinated. To be honest, I think most kids are. I don't think I was unusual in being fascinated by these puzzle boxes and ways of systems of organising things. So any bit of furniture or gadget like that, anything where you can open a door and slide bits together and fit every part of something within a, a form uh, was something I was always obsessed with. So the first works I started making were rather literal, um, uh, I guess, responses to, to what I'd always looked at. Uh, this is the making of a, a model city at the Royal Opera House. Um, and this was one at the English National Opera beginning to be a little bit more adventurous. Um, and then this was the one that took place at the National Theatre in 2013. Um, again, beginning to understand a little bit more how to abstract from the literal uh, observations. Ugly Lies the Bone, this was called. And then something interesting happened with this, where I felt able to... Oh, here are some pictures of them building it, which is quite interesting. They had to climb up the walls at the Littleton Theatre. Um, yeah, this is the picture, pictures of the work in action. Um, yes, to make that leap then to say, well, actually, I'll make one of these and I'll tell a story within it myself uh, that isn't actually contextualising someone else's narrative. This was quite a, a recent uh, leap, really. Uh, this is the one in New York. And here's the one that's on at the moment at Somerset House, which is... You know, again, introducing these hands that keep recurring throughout the um, studio practice. This is poor Tina who had to fit all the pieces together because they arrive like that. You know, I mean, an important thing to say about 
the way that I make work is I don't really make much of it myself at all. I have an idea, I do some sketches, it gets passed from person to person in my studio who turn it into actual instructions for someone else to make. And then we often pass files over to machines which will you know, CNC cut these small pieces of foam or these pieces of MDF or print, digitally print these small buildings. And then this is a group of people in Deptford laboriously piecing this thing together. Um, and then here it is. Um, finally at uh, Somerset House. This is another little artefact that holds, you know, so, so many uh, sort of junctions and hinges in my studio practice. So I made this model uh, in 2005 because I had a hunch that I could tell the story of Don Giovanni uh, through a maze. Uh, and I proposed that this maze would revolve on the stage and that we would find the characters within it. Um, however, of course, there's a problem because the audience can't see into the maze. So I put a big mirror above it and that felt like a great idea. But in the end, um, it wasn't possible. It wasn't going to work. Um, so I did all these sketches and thought, well, what if I shifted my perspective so I'm in the maze and I'm looking down corridors instead? So the resultant production, this was the first Don Giovanni I worked on in 2006 in Vienna, was in fact... Yes, taking the maze, but being within it and looking down corridors. And that worked. Um, the wall shifted around, found a way into it. Then, in 2014, I was asked to work on Don Giovanni again at the Royal Opera House. And I hadn't planned to, but my mind, almost like a little ball in one of those um, puzzle boxes, just headed off down the same train of thought again, uh, almost against my will. And... Mazes, it was, had to be a maze. That's what the structure of the piece and the music of the piece uh, seemed to invite. So I did these kind of sketches. Uh, and again, you know, getting a little bit more ambitious, this is now nine years later. Um, yeah, made all these models, had a plan for how this would all work. Got quite far, actually, with developing this proposal, started drawing it all up. Somebody stamped on it. Uh, it looked, you know, it was beginning to be a bit official. But again, it was kind of thwarted. Um, I'll come back in a minute to what it ended up being. So I tried to take it down another route. This was for the MTV Music Awards in 2010. I said, well, I'll, I'll do my maze here. <laughs> can't, can't make it work anywhere else. So I inscribed it as a kind of printed circuit board, beginning to think about how the maze could represent <coughs> some kind of neural network even then. So this is 2010. Um, that got thwarted. Whichever artist, I forget who it was, singer, didn't want to sing in front of that maze. So... I went to Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, I was designing the Pet Shop Boy shirts, and I said, I've got this great idea, printed circuit boards. So in the end, it did find uh, some kind of first iteration uh, as the backdrop for their electric tour. Um, but again, a two-dimensional version. Meanwhile, because the duration of an opera design process is far longer than an MTV award or a Pet Shop Boys concert, um, the design process for Don Giovanni is still chuntering along, you know, with on and off and on and off. So now it gets to this point where I'm still sort of playing with this idea of a perforated, aperture-laden, revolving plane. Um, and these are some of the model images. And in the end, it did indeed, this is a production photo, it did find expression as a revolving maze-like um, production. These are all Don Giovanni. So the maze kept reoccurring. This was a little sketch drawn actually on a ferry uh, in Greece. Um, 
with that little you know, spiral binding, working it out, you know, often doing drawings without a ruler, but just having the grid of, uh, or the horizontal lines on a piece of paper, saying, okay, well, if that horizontal line can represent two meters, I can actually, I quite like doing that, actually. You see the little, um, this is quite interesting here, this is me working out what a meter is without a ruler, just going, well, if I divide it equally, and I know that's 12 meters. Um, so this became, uh, this was an earlier iteration, the mirror maze in Peckham, which again was quite a leap for me, because it was me having to, as Alice mentioned, write my own story, write my own narrative to go in a piece of work. Um, and that was one of the first. These were some of the computer-generated versions of it. And this was the actual thing. Um, these are the storyboards of the ideas. Again, this idea of hands um, and lines um, starting to find their way into this work. And at this point, I made a film about hands, but I didn't feel confident to use my own hands. Um, I felt my own hands were too sort of old and chewed and bitten, I couldn't use them. So I used Machiko's hands from my studio, who's got wonderful hands. But uh, that was the last time I ended up using my own hands on the next one. Um, and then these are something I want to share with you because they're projects that never happened. Um, constant iterations around this idea of a maze. Um, kind of like a brain. This, this was an exercise in how many miles of journey could I fit in this specific warehouse in Brooklyn that I was looking at. Um, they never came to pass. This was a really convoluted one. This was the first iteration of um, a project called Room 2022 in a hotel in Miami at Christmas. And it started off, these are the renders for it, very, very uh, ambitious acres of materials, which, to be honest, it would have been a, pretty much a disgrace if we had built it. Um, in the end, we built a, a, a portion of it. And this became the second mirror maze um, that, I, that I made. And this line, um, this has become a kind of a habit now that I wake up in the morning because I travel a little bit. And often I wake up and I, um, I don't know quite where I am. And I think, yeah, I'm sure everyone has perhaps experienced that. And I will sort of orientate myself um, by what I see immediately. And it's often at this kind of line of light uh, through the curtains. And this is something I've been looking at actually since the beginning. This was 2000, a work with Rombert Dance Company, where really the only device for part of it was a varying width of light, um, very much influenced by the artist Lucio Fontana, who I followed closely when I was a student and still rely on heavily um, uh, as a mentor, I would say. I play this film, actually to a single line of light, my only point of reference to anything. I didn't know which room or which country or where the door was. I knew only this single line and that the longer I could know nothing but this geometry, the more I might discover. I picked up the line, it drew a hotel room by room, floor by floor, everything mirrored and connected. It seems like a leap of imagination, doesn't it? To extend this fantastical geometry from a single line. But it's nothing, is it, really? Compared to what we all need to agree to believe every time we stay in a hotel. 
things that are sitting around the studio are these pieces of model which have never found a home yet these were ideas for a royal ballet piece again trying to find the maze in the mind these were sketches I showed to Katy Perry but she didn't like them um, so this was uh, an idea about how one could uh, express you know multiple layers of um, a practice through uh, layers of a, a maze like minds and uh, how could you also express voice how could you talk about a pop voice? Uh, how could you literally find a graphic identity for that through the form of a megaphone? So that began to feature. I hadn't drawn a megaphone particularly before that, but that began to surface. Back again, working at the same time with the Royal Ballet, with this Katy Perry project, doing both at once, trying to rattle through, trying to scratch away at the same uh, lines of inquiry through two very different media, um, neither of which happened. So I'm sure I'll find one at point. This is, this is another unrealised project. So this was, again, at the same time, saying, well, what if I pull all the lines of that apart? Um, I can't really mention who these people are, um, because this might get realised, but they're four, a band of four who don't perform anymore. I'll move on from that one quickly. Another unrealised maze uh, for, with Pharrell, which, uh, which hasn't happened to date, and then this was an interesting one. This was our mutual friend, Hans Ulrich Obrist, who invited me to make a piece of work at the Serpentine Gallery. And of course, I was very excited doing the Serpentine Gallery. And uh, I just, I thought it'd be interesting to draw a poem around the pavilion that was there. So I had a lot of thoughts and made a lot of iterations about how that might, it was going to be small boxes with speakers with wrapped around text, none of which happened um, yet. Uh, other, you know, intersecting mazes, which did happen. This one was with Louis Vuitton uh, in Paris, large-scale uh, show, and another maze with them in Rio. Um, this was at 180 Strand, another way to bounce out of those experiments with the dome form into the atrium at 180 Strand. Still trying to uh, explore these circular mazes on the Pharrell, now finding other ways that I can express them uh, in... Cape Town. So this is a project that will happen. Uh, it's very much in production at the moment. It'll be outside the new Heatherwick um, Museum in Cape Town. Um, so these forms, again, you know, just twisting. Again, having the object. There was a talk just before uh, earlier this evening, which I, I watched. I watched uh, with with great interest. Where there was a conversation about objects. 
and what it means to hold an object in your hand. And I probably wouldn't have made a leap from this overhead view of a spiralling maze into a conical form if I hadn't mopped up an object of it and just twisted it in my hand. Um, the puzzle box. This was, again, this uh, experiment with... Often in pop music, one's invited to make an awards show. The invitation is to make an environment where eight performers can come and each do their thing, an MTV Awards, a Brit Awards, whatever it is. And it's, of course, a completely poison chalice type of invitation because none of these performers want anything that you've provided at all. Um, and, you know, whatever it is, it won't be liked because you know, people want to come with their own ideas. However, I went into this 2010 version uh, not knowing any of that and with the audacity and hubris of saying, actually, I will make a beautiful revolving cube puzzle box thing and I will provide eight environments and these eight performers will all like them. And of course, they all hated them and I'd spent all the money already on them so they couldn't change it. That's the best one I've ever done. They all failed after that when I retreated from that position. It didn't work. Um, this was the early model of that. And this was Rihanna gritting her teeth and performing in front of the thing she didn't really like, um, which has now mutated into a little, uh, some other forms of work that we've been, we've been making in the studio. Uh, this was Parsifal at the um, Opera House in Copenhagen. Another um, thing that was a cone that turned and formed this void. And this is some of the early models on the way to making the Kanye Yeezus project. Again, this void. Um, and I... I want to talk a little bit about um, the attitude I developed towards working with some of these um, performers because I'm asked regularly about that. You know, what was it like working with so-and-so? No. And this is an interesting image to me because this congruence, just visual congruence between a fencing mask and a speaker um, to me explains quite a lot because one standing, if you're one of those performers, you are, of course, standing in front of uh, 100,000 people and you must have armour on, you must present a mask in the way that the Greek theatre uh, relied on that uh, armour and mode of expression. Um, so this kind of uh, congruence of voice and mask is something I've learnt a bit about. Uh, these were some sketches made with Kanye of a, a rather immediate response to, to looking at that image and saying, well, what if, you know you were from your mask tied directly to, to the speakers, to the mode of delivery, and you know, he began wearing a mask. Um, and recently with Abel Tesfe with uh, The weekend at Coachella, this was made by scanning Abel. Once we'd had the idea, we immediately rang up someone who could come straight over to the house, scan his face, because, of course, it had to be made within eight days or something fast. Um, and here's how it ended up looking... Um, on the stage at Coachella. Um, this was the first sketch for the Beyonce Formation tour. Um, again, a, a way to translate, you know, I, I've observed that when you look at the audience watching a, a concert, it doesn't really matter what you've made. The audience wants to come and see the face of the performer, um, especially with the female performers. The men somehow can resist this further. They can express themselves perhaps through a mountain or you know, through something else. The women, it's really difficult to substitute that, um, the mask of the actual face. So the way I've found into this is, well, let's, you know, 
You can't show your actual face. Let's make a mask for you. Let's make something that's going to protect you. And in the case of Beyonce, it was this big breaking um, cube. Uh, and the splitting of the mask would reveal uh, the small individual within. Again, bringing these hands uh, back into play, still sitting there in the studio. Um, I, I insert this into a conversation about Beyonce just because it was happening exactly the same time that we were talking about these hands and then um, making the, these giant pair of hands happen uh, to express a, you know, an equally vulnerable uh, 19th century protagonist, Carmen. Um, so that didn't go... Uh, yeah, I, I was very observant to the fact that I was working with these two women across centuries. Um, an interesting point about, uh, people often ask me, you know, what's the distinction between working opera or theatre performance and working uh, in a large-scale rock pop performance environment? And actually, this thing about speakers, seeing the sound, you know, somehow there's a fetishization of the means of augmenting sound in rock and roll. Often what you'll really come away with is the size of the speakers or the truss framework of the speakers, the delivery of the sound, the amplification. But of course, in opera, there's a sort of uh, shyness, perhaps. The opera, certainly at that scale, they don't want to uh, particularly advertise the fact that the sound's being amplified. So all of our speakers on that project were hidden, uh, which is why it's one of my favourites, actually, of a large-scale work, because the sculpture can be read uh, without this framework of the speakers, because those little uh, blocks that you see, the coloured blocks, are all the speakers concealed within the object. Here's the first, first models of it. Um, back to Beyonce, because it was all at the same time, hands again. And I wrote there, I think, big pop star hand, lets little human fall. Um, some of the early sketches um, working through, again, always working, little bit stations of the cross, always working iteratively, uh, consecutively in series through, uh, you know, the duration of the concert, never thinking just of an object, but how it will uh, cover the arc of a story and split in half. Um, these sketches I've shown before, but they make me laugh. I think they're funny. Um, again, just this sort of back to the memory palace of the studio and in my head how uh, a sketch of a, a face and a sketch of a house... Um, seem to me to be naturally connected. Um, I mean, there's quite a funny story. I've told it before, but it is quite funny that I had one meeting with this performer, Miley Cyrus, and she, uh, at the time, had been sticking her tongue out a lot. And so I said, why don't we just do the show on your tongue? And she said, great, and that was job done. Left the meeting. Um, but it was going to be like that, all on the tongue. And, and the, you know, the people who had to sell the tickets said, well, that won't really work. There's not enough this and that. So I said, well, we can make the tongue like that, if you like. And, oh, that won't really work. We can make the tongue short. So it ended up being a little tonguette in the end. And that was me, again, without a ruler, on a plane, trying to work out a telescopic tongue. And you know you're really in trouble if you're trying to work out how a tongue can telescope. Anyway, in the end, it did, it did work okay. Um, I'm going to just rattle quickly through this, because this is funny. Uh, this is uh, a set list for uh, Adele. And just, again, very quickly go, OK, a little drawing for each song. How can I quickly take a group of songs and find a sweep, find an art, find a narrative through it? 
done first very quickly, um, and then a little bit more attention to how it might take form. Um, I think there might be a, there might be another video, Benji, that I forgot to tell you about. Um, this is quite funny. Is that will that play? I forgot to tell you about that one. Should I click it again? Yeah, turn it up now because this is funny. I found this on YouTube. It's a fan's video. It is quite sweet. simple but just hours of getting the blinks right um, and then this is uh, I'm going to talk for two more minutes then I'm going to invite you to ask me some questions but um, this was an early model for Watch the Throne this is um, Kanye you know, happy to not show his face happy to express himself through actually what ended up becoming the Beyonce formation to I have to say uh, split split sculpture uh, it was always going to be a split sculpture, maybe split cities. Uh, then it evolved into being these uh, split faces, split cubes, split thrones, eventually. Um, another way to, to you know, find a way to express portraiture uh, and mask. Very early one, this is 1999 for an opera by Tom Adesh, her face. Uh, and a very early Carmen, actually. Um, Back to you know just one viewer. I'm just enjoying this uh, contrast uh, between many and one at a time. And just to finish before I hand over back to Alice, what's happened recently is as I've been working large scale productions, I've spent some time turning away from the production and looking at the audience and observing scenes like this, obviously, uh, and finding it very interesting as a sculpture in itself. Um, and that has led to the work. This is a, a piece at the V&A at Christmas last year um, where the, the public were invited to each donate a word uh, to a collective carol, working uh, with an algorithm uh, writer who created an algorithm that would take those words and translate them into an ongoing poem, uh, training his algorithm on 25 million words of Victorian poetry. Um, and it, it was very interesting. Uh, I learnt a lot through doing it. I'm now going to be uh, making a new lion in Trafalgar Square on the 18th of September. The project's called Please Feed the Lions. And everybody can add one word to a collective poem. It'll be a whole poem, not just one line, Alice. It'll run up uh, Nelson's column each night. <laughs> um, and somehow, just to bring it back to the studio and the, you know, some of those forms, um, the neural network, the neural net uh, that's, that the algorithm writer, Ross Goodwin, works with, looks something like this. 
um, and looks something like this. And it's interesting that sort of without knowing it, finding these similar forms within the mind um, is, where, is where I've ended up, really. So, Alice, <laughs> any questions? Well, that was brilliant. Thank you. Could we have the lights up, please? Then we can see all your faces. Otherwise, we'll feel slightly spooky um, sitting here surrounded by dark. That's much, little more, much nicer. Um, so I'm going to ask just a couple of questions for Ayres and then throw um, questions open to you. So please think of them. Um, so to start, you talked about how you'd been observing the sort of clicking, mobile, selfie, cell phone, mm. photo-taking phenomenon. But to go back to the sort of central theme of your work, certainly in set design, which is, I feel, optimising the experience for the audience, how has the sort of the transition, the explosion of digital media affected that? And how does it affect the physicality of the sets, the angles and so on? You talked about how when people go to one of these massive stadium gigs, they want the face because they want at least an impression or illusion mm. of intimacy. But how does the addition of a digital device play into that? It's really a, an interesting question. Um, and it's, it's a tricky one because recently there was a moment where nobody had their phones at a concert. Um, and I did really notice the intensity of engagement without them. That said, they're there. Uh, I often look over the crowd of phones and I think, actually, it's the phones that have come to the show and the arms are just the chaperones that have sort of, you know, been dragged along just to get them there. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, a sort of imperative, I think, that we're all feeling to record and to document and to feed... Um, so it, it's, a, it's a cultural instinct at the moment, I think. It's as a species driven, we're all, I think, beginning to want to behave as more of a connected neural net between us. And there's a sort of comforting thing I read in Max Tegplank's book, Life 3.0, where he said, well, look, it's, it's not that weird uh, or unexpected that as a culture, as a species, we might want to behave in a more connected way. Uh, because if you think about it, 13.8 billion years ago, we were just hydrogen anyway. So if we've gone from being hydrogen to cells, from cells to more complex life forms, from more complex life forms to very complex life forms, why wouldn't the next step be that we want to behave in a more connected way and we want to behave more as one brain? Um, don't want to speak you out or anything, but it, I found that comforting. So to that end, um, you know, my instinct is to try and work with the sculpture that's there, those people with their phones. And actually with the uh, U2 project recently, we installed an AR app so that people could watch the first part of the show um, through their phones, which was quite interesting for the people who didn't have phones because it ended up making these little micro-communities of people looking over each other's shoulders and sharing, which was quite interesting. But yeah, I don't think they're going to go away. So They're clearly not. And obviously there was a major transition in your career was um, not giving up sort of posh theatre, opera, dance and so on. So that's still an enormously mm. important part of your work, but embracing these larger scale 
projects with much bigger budgets on the road for months on end. What were the pros and cons of of that? Um, Well, reach. Uh, There can be a sense when one's working in small-scale or even mid-scale theatre in England that you are talking to perhaps a limited number of people who will come to the theatre. And you you might see the same faces. Will you really reach as many people as you want to, um, whatever you're saying? So there is a great joy to witnessing 100,000 people um, all experiencing something together. There's a great energy in that. There's a, you know, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. Um, on the other hand, uh, the precision with which one can work at small scale is one of the reasons I continue to do it. It's almost like a workout. You know, to have to go down to the Donmar Theatre and work on a very small budget, um, you have to suddenly shift back into that mindset. You, know, you can't spend four pounds extra. You know, when I've been used to a big, large-scale thing where, you know, an extra few hundred wouldn't be noticed. Um, and, and to work with the precision of the audience's engagement, because one of the things that, uh, you know, I, we touched on in another conversation is how, how often do we not find our attention drawn to our telephone uh, for three hours? You know, how often do we actually sit and engage for three hours solid. It, it's becoming more and more unusual. So I do really value the, the, the current, and this might uh, end, but at the moment, the, the current etiquette that you do go into a phone and turn, uh, go into a phone, go into a theater and turn your phone off uh, and, and engage at a carbon human level without anything digital uh, for three hours. I really value that, so I, I think I'll continue. And I'd like to touch on the notion of authorship in your work, mm. um, looking specifically at set design rather than the, the sort of personal experiments you've been developing recently, because you work with absolutely incredible collaborators and they could clearly work with any designer they wanted to, whether it's the RSC, the Barbican, the Met in New York, or Adele, Beyonce, but they have chosen you. To what degree, and I'm sure this depends on collaborator from collaborator, do you feel that the work is yours or is it sort of your gift to them and defined to a far greater degree than by them? them? It's more of a Venn diagram of overlapping interests, in fact. Um, And I think what's been comforting about going back over the, the 20 years of experiments within the studio is finding, as I've just, I hope, demonstrated a little bit, through that little canter through images, finding these recurrent themes. Um, sometimes a theme's been brought to me by a collaborator. You know, I probably would never have experimented with a telescopic tongue. Thank me for Miley Cyrus. You know, I'm glad I did. And why not? Do you know? Um, so sometimes new things are brought. Sometimes, you know, they are recurrent interests of mine that happen to overlap with a collaborator. Clearly, you know. The collaborators I work with are incredibly powerful. You know, they they exude uh, force and energy. Um, but to, uh, what my experience has been is that uh, they generally really enjoy uh, a collaboration, which brings its own set of poems and stories as well. So two random questions before um, we invite you to ask them. And the first is impossible not to ask in the era of Time's Up and Me Too. Um, As a woman, 
How do you feel that gender politics has affected your work and the way that you're treated in the workplace? And also, has it changed? It's very difficult. Um, and you know what? I, I, I find, honestly, um, perhaps to my discredit, that I shut most of it out. Um, I generally just silence it. I don't... Sorry, by it. It's the, the sense often in a very male-dominated environment, particularly the pop environment, where I'm often surrounded by, you know, acres of uh, male faces. Um, so, sometimes, you know, I tell you when I really feel it is when I walk into a room and I know that people have just been saying, she hasn't got a clue how it works, she doesn't know anything about engineering, or daddy, 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 which, you know... Um, I think when I, that's what I mean, is I've kind of, you know, silenced that aspect of it. Um, and I think, it, you know, I think at this point one has to not, one has to sort of try to out it more. Um, but the way, the way that I've managed really is by um, trying to soldier on, I guess, sometimes. I mean, I've, you know, I've extraordinary opportunities, but I, I think, I've, I, think I, uh, I limit my own awareness of how much of it is a bit of a battle. And um, second random question, and this is a tribute to Hans Ulrich, the friend who yes. introduced us originally, um, because he always asks this question in his talks, but it's rather a constructive one, and that's, are there any unrealised projects, anything you really want to do but have yet to have the opportunity? I think to... I'd like to make a building. Um, uh, I've always sort of, I've contradicted myself here, because whenever anyone has asked me, how do you feel about the ephemerality of your work, I've always... Uh, n not had a problem with it. I've always said, well, it's the ideas that are the concrete thing and the mental structure, so I don't mind that the objects themselves... But I think uh, uh, from very personal uh, in instincts that I've shared with you, uh, I want the work to be more civic, more public, do more good. So I'd like to make buildings that can be of more service. Well, that's a wonderful that way note. to end, because sadly <laughs> we've run out of time... Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming, the Royal Academy for organising the talk, and of course a huge thank you to Es Devlin for being such a wonderful, inspiring and generous speaker. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.